When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think was started back in 2008, and at the time, it was calling itself a YouTube for intellectuals. The idea was to gather some of the smartest, uh, most creative ideas from leading thinkers in every field and create a kind of online encyclopedia of emerging contemporary wisdom. And that's exactly what they did. Since then, Big Think has released over 10,000 short-form video ideas. And last year, with the buzz that was happening around podcasting, the quote-unquote golden age of podcasting, we thought we'd like to enter this space, uh, but we'd like to find a different voice for Big Think in this space. We wanted to resurface some of these older videos, but encounter them and interrogate them in a new way. And that's how the idea for Think Again, a Big Think podcast was born. The idea is that our video producers who know the archives really well go in and choose three clips that are a total surprise to me and to my guests and that are designed to spark interesting conversations. And over the course of the past year, we've had 56 episodes and many, many interesting, surprising, unexpected moments have happened. It's been an incredible journey for me personally. And I think it's a good time to look back on our roughly one year anniversary at some of the best moments uh, and the pivotal moments that have happened in the show so far, where we started, uh, where we traveled to, and where we've ended up at this point. And so for two weeks, we're bringing you two mixtapes of our greatest hits thus far. This is the first. In one of my early conversations, I spoke with author Juno Diaz, who's one of the most exciting novelists and short story writers working today. And in this segment, which is one that really embedded itself in my brain, we're talking in response to a clip by Israeli psychologist Dan Ariely, who writes about human irrationality. This is Dan Ariely, followed by Juno Diaz and me talking about dishonesty and double lives. One of the mainstreams of my research for the last ooh, more than 10 years have, has been focusing on dishonesty. We grew up in a social environment, and our parents tried to teach us what is acceptable and not acceptable. And in that environment, white lies are certainly acceptable, encouraged, and our parents teach us. There is a lot of things that we teach kids about how to be polite. And being polite often means not saying the exact truth. So this is white lies, right? And white lies are not about our benefit, it's about the benefit of others. Then, of course, there are the lies that have our benefit as well. Probably everybody who's ever late in New York blames the subway for some reason, right? They don't say, oh, you know, I, I know we had a meeting. I was just, I couldn't care really about getting here on time. I don't, I don't care so much about you waiting for me, so I left late. You don't say that, right? You say, I left on time. It's just a subway. You wouldn't believe what happened. But the interesting thing is that we learn to lie in this social realm. And then when we move to the business world, all of a sudden, we're not supposed to lie. 
But can we make this transition? As far as dishonesty goes, we're kind of blinded to the forces that cause us to be dishonest. You know, we look at other people and say, oh my goodness, these are awful people. I'm really good. But we don't really understand how pressures work on us and how likely we could be to just go down, take one wrong step and then go down the slippery slope, just like lots of other people. So That was fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm a fiction writer. I live inside of people's capacity towards self-deception. And I just, I'm endlessly fascinated by people who have an enormous capacity to deceive or people who deceive themselves or people who have a specific capacity to deceive themselves on one thing. I like love that. I just, I can't get enough of that. Friends of mine who are utterly some of the most sober-minded people that you could entrust the fate of a nation in their hands because of the way that that kind of mental, ethical sobriety lives inside of them, the probity which, which they represent. But when it comes to their son, are incapable of seeing honestly what in the world is going on. And I myself particularly am really fascinated by that. Do you think that everyone is in the same boat? He seems to suggest that this self-deception is pretty much inescapable, or that lying is inescapable for sure. pretty much everybody. I do think it's clearly a spectrum, and I do think it's part of our social lives. You know, it's part of the strategy of being a being, and that it takes an enormous amount of discipline not to. And yet, shoot, there's people that have disciplined their lives around other equally difficult things, like not having sex, a central human process. So I just think like, hey, I believe that there's people who don't lie that much and have reduced it down to a very small scale. Most of us are in the spectrum in other ways. We're not like completely compulsive liars and we're not, from my experience, and we're not the people who don't ever lie. I think we're all caught in this. I grew up in a family where deception was a baseline. It was like a family tradition. The parents deceiving the kids all the time. Yeah. The amount of deception that occurred in my family was epic. You know, it was that generation of Dominican immigrants where, you know, they didn't even tell us we were immigrating to the United States. They were just like, oh, we're going to go down the street. And the next thing you know, you're on a plane. Right. You don't even get a chance to say goodbye to your grandparents. That was not an uncommon deception. A lot of Dominican kids I know and other kids were never told the truth. They just were brought to the airport. Right. And so, you know, some of us live the consequences, but I'm, I'm super interested in that because I've always prided myself in having low levels of self-deception. And so I thrill every time I catch myself doing it. This is why it is very, very difficult to figure out how to be a good person. And this is why a lot of people allow themselves sort of off the hook or let themselves off the hook, I guess, and say, oh, it's a slippery slope. Nobody is perfectly moral. We all kind of lie to ourselves. And therefore, you know. Well, and what about, well, what about double lives? There's something about the way so many of us are split from ourselves. And I think about it, I mean, so many of our stories are dependent on double lives. As Aureli is pointing out, the culture encourages all sorts of white lies. Well, a culture also encourages all sorts of doubling inside our lives. To have a public face and a private face, to have a work life and a home life, then to have a sexual life, which isn't supposed to be present in this. By the time you get done with all this, the thing that you have the biggest muscle for is our living double lives. 
And how often do we discover people in power who have double lives, people in authority who have double lives? We're always shocked when one of our neighbors or one of our friends is revealed to have a double life. Well, that's who we are. We're encouraged. And often double lives require an enormous amount of deception. I mean, look, I lived a double life for so long because, you know, I used to be an old slut. You know, I would be seeing this girl behind the back of the girl that I was actually really supposed to be seeing. And not only is it exhausting and damaging and all that kind of stuff, but it also was easy. And I don't mean easy because it was just easy for me. It's that what I discovered when I was doing it, why it was possible is because we live in a society that encourages it. In other words, like all our sort of superhero narratives where people by day are, yes, by day, I'm just a kind of debauched playboy. I'm a kind of just ne'er-do-well, and by night I'm Batman. The reason this makes sense of us is because it speaks to what we know about ourselves. That certainly most of us don't got superpowers and are not running around at night, but for the most part, most of us are two or three or four people at once. And we understand that. Now, the way that this functions is that this is a practice that requires a whole lot of lying to hold together. I think the fear and sort of thrill that those things provoke in us in some way taps into our own, you know, all of the fears that most of us live with, you know, Shoot. because of those double lives. You know? Who doesn't remember, at least my generation, who doesn't remember Henry Hill? At the end of Goodfellas, Henry Hill is no longer living this insane Batman-like life. You know, where he's out committing all these crazy crimes and that he's now he has been reduced to a more unified self. And he's like, I'm a schmuck. I'm a nobody. And yeah, man, there's there's something to that. I think that you living these crazy double lives is like a drug. It's hard then to get back into the life of a square. And our design is fascinating. Our design is fascinating. It's from an artist. It's endlessly productive. I mean, listen, the entire genre of mystery, crime, procedural, thriller would disappear without that just mechanism of people's double lives. Yeah, you're making me think of people who are bipolar and then get medicated out of it and are like, I miss the highs and the, you know, I miss the cycle. That's tough. Yeah. So um, I think we're ready to move on to the next one. Yeah, let's see Mm -hmm. what we have next. Sam Harris is one of the most interesting and controversial philosopher, writers working today. Controversial because he takes strong positions on religion, specifically with respect to Islam. He has written about violence being inherent in Islam, which has obviously upset a lot of people. Although to his credit, he has also publicly engaged in dialogue with Majid Nawaz, who is an Islamic intellectual, trying to find common ground and some areas of understanding. And one of the things I like best about Sam Harris is his intellectual honesty and willingness to problematize his own thinking and admit when he's been wrong. In, in this clip, uh, he's talking about something that we've really never heard him talk about before. We watch a short interview clip from Joyce Carol Oates, and we end up talking about monsters in literature, uh, specifically around Vladimir Nabokov's book, Lolita. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. 
And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Most people, I think, who write are involved in an attempt to solve a problem of what really happened, what motives are, what the subterranean meanings are in, in an event. And many people can only do that if they are very introspective and they think about it and they maybe write about it over a period of time rather than doing something very haphazard and intuitive. So I, this is maybe the project of art itself is to understand ourselves and understand the world and maybe to communicate some meaning because life in itself is a rush and it's chaotic and in the turmoil meaning tends to be lost and we feel a malaise and we feel despair if there isn't evidently meaning in our lives. So there are times in, in cultures in crisis where there's a feeling of an atmosphere of despair, like a collective despair. And I think oddly enough that art can flourish in those times because art is a way of trying to focus the, it's still the chaos and look for, for meaning. So I think that's one of the projects of, of the novelist. You write nonfiction primarily, as far as I know. I very much enjoy your writing and think you have a strong aesthetic sense as a, as a writer. I wonder what you think about the relative effects of the kind of writing you do, which might be called philosophy, and Art, on the other hand, in terms of making sense of the world, you know, getting at meaning. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts just in general on that topic. Well, I, I tend to have trouble with this word meaning. I think it's, you know, as in what is the meaning of life? I think that is a just a bad question. And <laughs> people struggle to have an answer. People struggle to find an answer to it is often taken as some deficit. There's something missing if you can't answer that question. And the answers people do put forward, like love or God or what, what are you, faith or whatever, uh, you know, no matter how articulate you are on those topics, they tend to sound platitudinous and not all that useful in the end or even inspiring. Right. Now, I think it's, you know, to say that, you know, the meaning of life is love you know, discovering love in yourself and, you know, surrounding yourself with people you love and sharing love. I mean, that experientially, that's probably as good as it gets, but it, it doesn't get you science. It doesn't get you an understanding of the cosmos. It so there's just, it's not a, there's not a good fit between all the things that are good about existence and this question about meaning. And so, you know, art, you know, I love art and I consume some forms much more than others, but they're certainly, as you said, you know, attentive to the aesthetics of of producing nonfiction. So it's you know, there's there's certainly an art in doing that. So you don't have to be just making stuff up to have an artistic sensibility. What art does, in many respects, is give us certainly you know fiction of the sort that Joyce Carol Oates is talking about. There it gives us an experience of other minds that we, albeit made up minds that we don't get 
otherwise. You, you, can, you can literally get inside someone's head and have access to their thoughts or what the author is telling you their thoughts are. And it's a, it's a kind of you know, simulated telepathy, which is very powerful. I mean, you can live vicariously through people, so through fictional characters, and you do this in, in fiction and film, and experience ranges of emotion that your own life doesn't necessarily produce in you. I mean, for instance, I, I remember as a teenager, my father was dying of cancer, and that was the year that um, Terms of Endearment came out. And I remember leaving the hospital and going to see that film. And I haven't seen that film in, in decades. I don't know how well it holds up, but the focus of the film is on someone's terminal illness. And I remember crying watching the film in a way that I that I hadn't cried in my father's hospital room. Right. Right. And so there, that could see, sound pathological stated that way. But what really happened was that the film created a, a very powerful outlet for me to really kind of run through that whole emotional arc and to, to kind of understand the situation I was in better than the actual data of my life was allowing me to do it in that moment. The range of experience that you can have appreciating art, you know, kind of running it on your brain as a piece of software is far beyond what any of us individually are going to experience uh, no matter how adventurous our, our lives become. So it's it's incredibly useful. And I mean, just one, one reference I'll, I'll give readers who may have not heard of it, but Joyce Carol Oates' own work uh, offers a great example of this. There's a, a story that she wrote, again, decades ago, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Which is the story of essentially a, a serial killer showing up to abduct a, I think, a, I don't know, a 14, 15-year-old girl. And it's just about the conversation he has with her. There, there's some intimation, I think, that he is, in fact, Satan, given in the story. But it's one of the spookier stories ever written, kind of the manipulation of this little girl by this truly evil person. And to write it, she had to so get in the head of evil to do this credibly. And it exposes you. You, know, you can actually learn something about what a psychopath is like from reading this story insofar as she credibly produced this. And, and so it's a, there's a sense in which art literally expands our experience into other lives, which we can't otherwise achieve. And so it's, it's, it's incredibly powerful that way. What you were saying about that Joyce Carol Oates story reminds me also of my own feelings about Lolita by Nabokov, which I think is one of the, the best books I've ever read in the English language. And it's a book that some people will never read because they sort of have heard that the subject matter is disturbing and involves a pedophile and they don't want to go there. But what is so brilliant about it is that you go there, the, the main character is uh, so charismatic, Humbert Humbert, so seductive, so sort of funny and wry in his observations of the world. You go deep into his consciousness you know, and all the way along the ride before you're like, oh my God, this is a hideous, twisted person in many ways. But, you know, I wonder whether that kind of experience can also better enable us to have the kinds of dialogues that you're trying to have, uh, that Majid is trying to have, to understand people who are looking at the world in a radically different way. Yeah, well, I think it would be great to produce art in this area. And you know, some people have done that to some degree. But I, I think a novel that puts you very much in the head of someone like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi would be a very powerful document 
because you know, if one did this right, you would see the internal consistency and the absolute sense of his own personal you know, rectitude. I mean, the, the, these guys, unlike Humbert Humbert, these guys have no awareness that they are failing to follow some norm that they endorse, right. right? They are following all the norms they endorse. They are prototypically good within their worldview. Yeah, I mean, the, so, you know, there are ways, I, I think there, there probably are forms of art, that the net result of which are not helpful. You know, they, they may be titillating or even genuine masterpieces of a kind, but they sort of mislead us about what human life is actually like or what is actually possible or what is desirable. And if there's any criticism to, to be leveled at Nabokov for Lolita, I, I think you probably could level the charge at him that he did, in fact, make Humbert Humbert far too charismatic and attractive. And in response to criticism, when he kind of threw it back on the reader saying, well, you know, it's, it's your fault that you went along for the ride with him in that way because he is, he is just a monster and I knew it all along, he's... Um, He's such a, an attractive monster that it's, you know, every every reader can be forgiven for having kind of rooted for him to get his conquest. You know, I mean, you're, you become a bit of a pedophile along with him for part of that book because he is such delightful company. And that's part of the genius of it. But you know, arguably, it's part of what is, from a pedagogical point of view or an ethical point of view, it's, it's not... Um, you find yourself on the wrong side from time to time, and you know maybe that's an insight into human nature, or maybe it's it's corrupting of it, or both. I don't I don't know. Interesting. I mean, we we should probably move on to the next conversation, sure. but I want to I, I just want to tease this out a little bit further because I, I think it's very interesting territory. This this territory between thinking of someone as a monster because we condemn and need to condemn them morally, and on the other hand, recognizing them as a human being, which may actually be necessary if we are to change them, if that's even possible. I think I wouldn't condemn Nabokov's project in making Humbert charismatic. Like, I don't know that it's his responsibility to make him abhorrent. Uh, he's a, it's his responsibility possibly to take us there into his consciousness. And if he's attractive to us, he's attractive. It's not like a gotcha thing. It's like, you know. Well, no, yeah, no, I, I guess I'm not. That, well, there was a bit of a gotcha. And just, I just remember, and I don't know where this appeared, but I remember some places in which he discussed Lolita and okay. discussed it as though you perverts who, <laughs> who, who liked Humbert Humbert, you know, I, I can't believe that you didn't realize that he was a monster. Okay. It's like, it's like he, he distanced himself from Humbert Humbert in a way that I didn't think was credible. But you know, so another example you know, from film would be like far less of, a, of an achievement artistically, but something like you know, Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. So I guess that's, that's right. you know, originally a book too. But um, you, know, so you got Anthony Hopkins playing Hannibal Lecter, I mean, you love Hannibal Lecter, right? You <laughs> right. want to, you, 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 you know, you want to get back to the Hannibal Lecter scenes in that movie, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's part of the fun of film and and fiction generally. But no one who made that film, and certainly not Anthony Hopkins, 
would turn around on you and say, you know, what the hell is wrong with you that you right. liked Hannibal Lecter? Right. I would say that, you know, Nabokov was rather naughty intellectually, and I wouldn't necessarily trust him in any public iteration to be, you know, doing yeah. anything other than toying with the interviewer at any given time. Yeah. 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 And also, we, we also should remember just as a, a free speech issue that he got hammered for Lolita. And, right. And um, I, I don't remember all the details of how it was banned or almost banned and and uh, how he was pilloried but it, he, you know it was a rough ride publishing that book indeed indeed um all right sam so shall we uh shall we move on to the third and final round sure maria popova is a unique figure in the internet for years now she's been running um what you might call a blog or uh, it's also a newsletter. She curates, quote unquote, moments of interestingness from the internet. And one of the things I like best about Maria is that she's somehow able to present material and stories and old letters that are totally old fashioned and totally at odds with the kind of buzz that the internet generally feeds on. And they go viral. People love them. Uh, she has hundreds of thousands of followers. I think she is a voice of stillness in a very, very busy world. Here we're responding to a clip by William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk on the original Star Trek. He's talking about his long-standing and sometimes difficult friendship with Leonard Nimoy. And it leads to a really wonderful conversation that meant a lot to me about friendship. I always knew it was difficult to make friends. You know, and, and of course you define the meaning of friends. I had to struggle a lot in underschool before college. I had a lot of stuff I had to deal with externally, fights and stuff like that to protect myself. Then when I got older, I had so many things to do. I was an actor at an early age and I was always dashing off. So that making friends was a skill I I didn't know you make friends. Like, have you ever wondered what an opera singer goes through to have that divine voice? It's a skill that's learned. You exercise that muscle the way a, muscle, a bodybuilder builds their biceps. You can learn to do anything. I made a friend with Leonard that I've often asked people, do you have a friend? Do you have a friend? And, you know, they're, they have to puzzle about it. And, I think that's what marriage is. You make a friend, and now it's memorialized in writing. And But there's an element of passion there that takes it somewhere else than the friendship I'm talking about. That's a very difficult thing to do, to have that the brotherly love that I'm talking about. But it's possible, and that's what Leonard might have taught me. love this. I really, really love it, in part because my one of my New Year's resolutions this year was to be much more deliberate about how I use the word friend, because I think we have gotten to this place in culture where we've commodified the term, and it's, you know, somebody that's a 
just an acquaintance that you met once and you want to name drop somewhere. Oh, you know, my friend so-and-so. And it's such a disservice to friendship. And I've made this rule for myself to only ever call a friend somebody who knows my interior life and whose interior life I know. And I mean, these are friends, you know, people that you've held their newborn. And It's funny you say that because I just tweeted yesterday something about how how many public figures I've heard say, my friend Christopher Hitchens. Like I said, <laughs> if I hear one more person say, if I have a dollar, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, my friend Christopher Hitchens, I said, either this guy had a lot of friends or these people are a lot of self-promoting jerks. Oh, but, but also, he was such a curmudgeon. <laughs> it's so funny that <laughs> they paint him to be this gregarious, affable, multi-friended yeah, yeah. person. No, but so I totally hear you on the sort of promotional, mm. you know, friendship. Uh, yeah. But, this, but the, skill, go ahead, yeah. The, the skill aspect, I think that is the deciding factor. It, the measure of friendship is not how many times you've had coffee with somebody, you know, or do you have their, do they follow you back on Twitter? The measure of friendship is how much both of you have been willing to show up for the friendship, how much self-forgiveness and forgiveness you bring, and most of all, how willing you are to say, I fucked up, because in any friendship, right. there comes a point when people fuck up and friendships fall apart over the inability of one party to admit having hurt the other. Yeah, I, this almost made me cry listening, yeah, watching him too. do that. Like, I just feel like... Because he was almost crying. Yeah, and I just feel like there's a special poignancy to male friendship in our culture, at least mm -hmm. like in terms of the some of the difficulties he was describing of, you know, being open, sharing your inner life with someone. I think generally in our culture, women are better at that. I will go out on a limb and say that which is why real male friendships in movies or like father-son moments where there's reconciliation pretty much always make me cry. I yeah. just think there's just so much posturing that can happen and so much self-protection. I'm sure this is true for many women too. Mm. This has been my... You know, it's interesting. We all bring our perspective to it for you, the male friendship. For me, as a queer woman, having women friends, you know, sometimes the self-protection comes from what he said about the difference between a marriage and a friendship. Where is that mm -hmm. line where, you know, when, when does a friendship become more than friendship where the possibility exists? And how do you protect yourself from that? How do you protect the integrity of the friendship from that? And that's right. a difficult line to walk. Yeah, I mean, this idea of friendship being a skill. You know, Aristotle wrote beautifully about friendship and the conditions that are necessary for a true friendship. Right. And he basically said that having kind of abstract fondness for a person is necessary, but there's also the daily presence. It's very hard to sustain a friendship that is just an idea and that, that is only supposed to kind of manifest when things get rough or when the person needs you. You have to be right. kind of woven into the fabric of each other's lives. And that aspect, I agree with Shatner on. It, right. it is a skill, especially, you know, in New York where everybody is so overcommitted and the kind of right. hamster wheel of busyness that we put ourselves on. Sure. It takes a skill and a deliberate intention to hop off of it and make time for your friends, not just when it's a crisis moment. Right. Well, what do you think about the issue of compatibility? Because I think about this a lot. Like I have different friends with some of them. It's like 
there's just an improv energy. There's just a flow. Like, mm. you know, you could get on the phone with them five years from now after not having talked to them, and it would, it would, there, that energy would be going back and forth. Others, they're extremely different from me, There's and it's a different kind of work. Which friendships are worth preserving, and how do you decide, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to not have really had any problems with friends in my life. I think one friendship maybe kind of dissolved naturally, and... I've thought about it a lot. For me, I'm a big believer in cutting your losses. When you feel that something is getting worse rather than better, despite your best intention and your best effort. And right. to me, the measure for when to extricate yourself from a friendship or any situation really is when you begin to feel like it's forcing you to contract yourself rather than expanding yourself, where you have to do too much pretzeling to protect the other person essentially from themselves, from their own vulnerabilities. Right, and right. when you start tiptoeing around who you are in order to remain in a friendship or a relationship or a situation, sure. it's probably time to go. What if you were the only person that by simply being patient and having a bit more compassion like, could actually sort of nurture that person out of, I mean, obviously you can't save someone who's like on a downward uh, spiral see, to death the, or whatever. That's but, the slippery slope though, okay. because I think it's very seductive to see oneself as the person who could change somebody's pathology, <laughs> right. essentially. That's narcissism know? or something? It, I mean, it's a form of, I think it's a noble impulse ultimately to be able right. to help, but it's also a form of arrogance to think that even though this other person has the same patterns in every relationship in their life, you'd be the special <laughs> right, one that right, can right. love them out of their pain. And <laughs> sure. I think that's a self-defeating <laughs> strategy most of the time. Yes, that's probably true. Okay, well, shall we see what the next one is? Let's do it. That we've got? Okay, cool. Saul Williams is a rapper and a poet. He's a force of nature. He's unlike any other artist working in his intensity and energy and his edgy sense of humor. I've been listening to his music since I was in college, and I was delighted to be able to sit down with him. We talked about many things, including his very unusual solution to the problem of ISIS, which was the idea of sending in an army of poets. The whole episode is well worth listening to, I think. But here we're responding to a clip by social media strategist Charlene Lee, who's talking about the Pope and the fact that he takes selfies with people. And that leads to a conversation that gets into Saul's relationship with his father, who was a Christian preacher. Uh, and it's another one that I found really memorable. I consider Pope Francis to be one of the most interesting, engaged leaders on the scene today. He had a mission when he became the Pope, and that was to bring down this power distance between the Pope and the rest of the Catholic Church, and frankly, the rest of the world. One of his first actions that he did was to step down from the dais to be amongst the people. And one of the things he started doing digitally was to tweet a lot more, be on Facebook through his various teams. But he also started taking selfies. He would go up to people and say, take selfies with me. I think in many ways, he very systematically decided how he wanted to engage. One of the things that allows Pope Francis to be such an engaged leader is that he has this interesting mix of confidence in himself and his position, but also a tremendous sense of humility. Well, yeah, I mean, 
I too have felt like, wow, this is a pretty cool pope. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm like, it's about fucking time. <laughs> like, he better. The Catholic Church is a culprit. You know, I mean, like what they have been behind, what they have fostered has held humanity back. In so many different ways and also what they've <laughs> covered up. I mean, yeah. they're coming out of this hideous well, yeah, we, scandal. You, we talk you know. about that, you know, in terms of little boys and all that shit. But on top of that, I mean, like, I mean, my birthday is February 29th. Okay. Leap year from the Gregorian calendar as a result of Pope Gregory. The purpose of that calendar, really, right? One of them was what? To separate Passover from Easter, Hanukkah from Christmas. And it forms a grid that we must then find a way to literally think outside of that box. So as someone who has had less birthdays than the average person who is supposedly my age, I'm 10 years old, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, I think you about feel that time a lot. Catholic Church has done a violence to time in a way and Yeah, and, and, it's, and, and I only use that as an example. I mean, I know very well, like why people go to church is another mandate. You read the Bible, the Bible will tell you that the Sabbath is the seventh day, Saturday. Right. So why do we go to church on Sunday, Christians here? Right. One might argue that it was to put the power of the institution over the power of the word. Most people don't understand why Christmas falls where it does or that Easter, for example, was a maternal holiday, a celebration of fertility. Right. Right? That's covered up. Even the idea of taking the woman out of the divine and creating a trinity that is a father, a male child, and a ghost is so fucking obvious, <laughs> but so hardcore in its ramifications. Right. It sets back the clock. Yeah. Literally. I identify heavily, let's say, with the teachings of Jesus. Why not? Why, teachings. You know, <laughs> I believe that he'd be anti the Catholic institution as well. Like, you wouldn't see him with the fucking gold chalice. <laughs> you know, no. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Right. Like, not at all. Um, so, what do you think about the power of ideas, like, outside of the protecting force of an institution? You know, like, left to their own devices, are, would ideas be sufficient on their own? Like, do we not need institutions, you well, know, to carry them forward? These things, I think it's inevitable, you know? Like, I had this amazing conversation with my dad before he passed, and my dad was a Baptist minister who pastored a church, and around the time I was 18 or 19, and really, like, finding the courage to say, like, I'm not Christian, I don't identify as that, and but still, like I said, identifying with spirituality and exploring anything from the, the Gnostic Gospels, the Dead Sea Scrolls, to Eastern literature, to the Kabbalah, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, all of this stuff. I'm exploring this stuff. And I find this one book called, what? The Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ, which covers the 18 years that Jesus is not in the Bible because right. Jesus isn't there from 12 to 30, right? Right. It's interesting. 
because during those 18 years, he has Jesus learning how to meditate, studying Buddhism, going into Egypt, and getting into like the ancient Kemetic lore, and like going to all these places around the world and delving into all of these different spiritual practices before coming back home. And I remember coming home from college with this book. And I, I go to my dad and I'm about to say something. I look on his shelf in his library and the book is there. And I'm like, you have this book? He's like, yeah. He's like, have you thought about this stuff? He's like, yeah. I was like, if you know that, for example, like I would always point to like a girl that I knew in junior high school, a Jewish girl, Jory Mazzola, who was like the sweetest girl in class, who like shared her snack, helped you with your homework. I, I was like, that's the best example I know of someone doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. But she's born into a Jewish household. Is she going to hell, Dad? Not until she accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. And I was like, I always knew there was some bullshit in that. Like, really? She's got a sign on the line, even though she's actually fucking doing it. She's embodying the thing you're talking about, but she needs to, really? Does she have a choice in the type of family she's born into? Like, really? What is this shit, right? So I asked my dad, like, if you know of the interconnectedness of spiritual disciplines, why do you say fix in this missionary Baptist, blah, 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 blah. Right. And he was like, I was an only child. This is the family I grew up in, and I understand more, but if I went that direction, I'd be an only child again. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then his like flock wouldn't have him right. either, right? right? I mean, those people wouldn't have had him. Exactly, and he was sincere in his mission. So I know that for the most part, for anyone who identifies with any of these religions, I have more in common with them then I don't. I'm just pinpointing the delineation between the institution right. and the spirit. Right. It's that us, them. I mean, the moment you make a church, you know, the moment you make a building right. and you put a name over it, whatever, right. like it starts, that process begins. So. Exactly. That's in the Tao. Naming is the beginning of all particular things. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 10,000 things. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to uh, see what they've got for us next. And I want to take us out on a much lighter note. Um, this is a very quick interview because Jesse Ventura, former wrestler, former governor of Minnesota, did not have a lot of time. I think we taped for 25 minutes. Uh, but we had a very lively conversation. And here we're responding to physicist Brian Greene talking about intelligent life in outer space. It's a really fun little conversation. And after that, we have a song by Matt Farley, who's famous for being able to write a song about anything. I asked him if he could write a song about Think Again, our show, and he produced it in just a couple days. So we'll go out on that note after the Jesse Ventura interview. Like most people, I look out on a dark night and I see all of the stars out there. And then I know about all the galaxies out there, you know, hundreds of billions of stars per galaxy, hundreds of billions of galaxies. Now we know that many of those stars have planetary systems and you can't help but just have a sense of, with all of that out there, there's got to be other life that somehow is populating some of those planets. But the big question to me is not so much whether there's other life out there, is there intelligent life out there. Now look, some will say that we don't have a single example of intelligent life in the universe, right? But putting that to the side, what I mean is, is there 
life out there that can build radio telescopes that could possibly communicate with us. And I don't think we know enough about what it takes for alien life to become intelligent in this sense of building radio telescopes to have any sense if it's likely or unlikely. You know, is it some strange coincidence of having big planets nearby like Jupiter that help deflect asteroids that allow enough time for life on this planet to have gotten to the point? Are there other contingencies that we don't know about that are so rare that maybe intelligent life happens only here? We don't know. But shooting from the hip, speaking from the gut, yeah, I think there's probably alien life out there and probably intelligent life too. When I heard him talk, I laughed to myself because I've done the same thing. Down in Mexico where I live off the grid, there's no electricity. When I look at the stars when I'm down there, it's immense. And I actually, when I see a shooting star, I watch it break into five pieces like fireworks. That's how good you can see it down there. And I've sat on my deck like he said, and you look out into this vast of stars and you say to yourself, how can there not be? There's got to be something out there. I, I always remember a friend of mine, we were way up north one night, sitting by a campfire and we're leaning back looking at the stars and I think, I don't know what we were listening to type of music and my friend kind of mumbled, oh yeah, we're the only ones. You know, meaning, yeah, right. we're, you know, yeah, right. we're the only things that looking out there. And we both burst out laughing. <laughs> because how could you possibly believe in this endless universe that there isn't some other life forms? Probably how many, we'll never know. But there's got to be some type of life beyond the planet Earth. It seems impossible that there wouldn't be. I mean, given the way evolution works and the way things become increasingly complex over time, you would think that something akin to intelligence... Well, look at the latest discovery on Mars. There's liquid water there. Yeah. Well, if there's liquid water, there's life. Right. It's that simple. And did you hear the thing about this thing that's here? I watched on Bill Maher with that Neil deGrasse... The, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, yeah, he's unbelievable. I love him. He's on Big Think often. Oh, yeah. well, have you seen that little thing that lives? That It's an ugly little thing. What is it? It doesn't <laughs> fit in to anything on Earth. Crazy. If it dries out, you just put water on it, it comes back to life. Water bear, maybe. I think I know what A you Water mean. bear. Yes. That's it. Okay. That's it. All right. The water bear. Now, they can't explain that thing here. They think that this thing came from Mars here because they have no way of tying it to anything on Earth, scientifically. Well, it's, like, it's almost like the missing link between man and monkey. Well, I don't think we can end on a note of greater wonder and amazement than that. Big things been added since 2008. Now they got think again, and it's extremely great. And that's it for our first ever mixtape of greatest hits thus far on Think Again. I hope you'll join us next week for part two. I want to thank everyone who's been with us on this journey, uh, whether you've been with us from the beginning or whether you're just joining us. And if you haven't had a chance to do so, and if you have five minutes, if you could rate or review the show on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you listen, that would be a huge help to our show. I would really, really appreciate it. Hope to see you next week. Mm -hmm.
Think again. Think again.